says, do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. Let such a person consider this. That what we are in word by letters when we're absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed to us, a a sphere which especially includes you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things beyond measure that in another man's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment, but he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. And Father, we just ask for the the grace and the help of your Holy Spirit as we continue now in our worship. Lord, you are worthy of our praise And Lord, whether on the mountaintop or the valley, you are God, you are good. And Lord, we want to continue to honor you, to glorify you, to worship you and serve you. And we want to do that now by submitting our heart and soul and mind and spirit to the truth of your word. So Lord, as always, by your spirit's ministry, speak to our hearts through what you've spoken in your word. And we ask this together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, a big part of being able to make a a healthy and a proper evaluation, uh, which is important to living well, to staying on track, to keep from being misguided in our thinking, uh, is what we see the Holy Spirit addressing really in our passage today. You notice a lot of what's being addressed here is about making evaluations, making judgments or assessments. And the danger and foolishness of making wrong evaluations when we assess things improperly as it pertains to others and ourselves. And also, of course, the importance of assessing ourselves or others in a proper way, in an appropriate way, making a right judgment, a proper evaluation Because God's evaluation is always the correct one, not mine, not yours, right? The Bible even tells us that God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. That as the heavens are high above the earth, so are my thoughts than your thoughts and my ways than your ways. And so ultimately, no matter how it looks to us, 
how things seem to us, what our perception of something or someone may be, we realize ultimately that God's evaluation and assessment is the correct one and it is the right view. And it's the proper perspective. And that's the view ultimately we want to be able to bring ourselves into alignment with. And ultimately having God's approval is what matters most as well. And these are things that our verses are addressing. Remember the backdrop, as we told you last week in this section, Paul, in these chapters, in this last section of the letter, out of protection for the welfare of the flock, has kind of been a place where he's now forced to address head on the attacks that are coming against his credibility of a minister of the gospel and as someone the Lord sent there to plant the church at Corinth and to shepherd and to help them. And so these false teachers and troublemakers, the Bible calls them deceitful workers and false apostles, as Paul describes them by the Spirit's leading, they were misleading the flock who Paul deeply loved and cared about. And Paul loved the flock of God and almost like a a father figure, he had a heart for them. And so as a protective parent, he wants to step in and that's what we find him doing now. He steps in kind of to protect the welfare of the flock and he does so by boldly speaking truth to counteract the lies from taking over and misleading people. And this is what we find Paul basically doing in this section. Now, as we come to verse seven, as we carry on here, you notice this section, he now opens by identifying a misguided way of thinking. Look with me what Paul says there in verse seven. He says, do you look at things according to the outward appearance? So Paul very clearly there recognized some in Corinth We're making a common, but yet a very critical error. And that is that in regards to both others and themselves, they were making wrong assessments by just looking at things from the surface perspective, from outward appearance. They were evaluating things and making judgments about people wrongly. Paul mentions in verse seven, they were going by mere appearance alone, which listen, that never sees all the unseen details. What we see on the surface, the things of appearance that we're able to see, that always is such a limited understanding of what's true in regards to a person, where they're at, how they're doing, what's going on, what the backstory is, what the details are. And it is always a very, very faulty way to make an evaluation just looking at the surface without taking the time to look deeper, to understand more. That's why the Bible even tells us in Proverbs, to answer a matter before you hear it is a folly and a shame. And all of us have lived that out before, where we start talking or answering or giving our input or giving our ideas before we truly understand where someone's at or what's going on or maybe what we honestly should be saying or for that matter, not be saying. And we make a folly and a shame because we don't take the time to, as the Bible says, be swift to listen and slower to speak. And in the same way, we assess things, appearance outwardly. We we don't have all the right understanding. And they were going off the way things appeared outwardly and making the mistake of judging the apostle Paul and even others, the false teachers around them in wrong ways. And in essence, what they were doing is they were being unimpressed with Paul's appearance and making wrong judgments about him. 
And they were sadly being overly impressed, it seems, with the outward representation of these deceitful workers and false teachers who were going to misguide them in a wrong direction because they were being overly impressed with them. So Paul kind of challenges that wrong mindset and attitude of judging improperly by asking this question, do you look at things, he says, according just to the outward appearance? Now, The prophet Samuel himself, if you remember 1 Samuel chapter 16, even the prophet Samuel himself and his humanity struggled with that same mistake. You remember the story in 1 Samuel 16, Samuel's told to go to the house of Jesse and to anoint the next chosen king of the nation of Israel. And as Samuel, a prophet, goes to Jesse's house, Jesse had multiple sons, and it tells us that as they started coming out, he sees uh, Eliab, the oldest son, who seemed to be perhaps probably the most likely because he was the oldest. He has the most experience. Perhaps he appeared like he was the the, the up-and-coming next high school quarterback, and that's got to be him. And it tells us that this is what happened. It says that Samuel looked at Eliab and said, surely that's the Lord's anointed. He just assumed, he deduced from just what he looked like, that surely has to be the Lord's anointed before me. And then the Lord rebuked Samuel saying these words, do not look at his appearance or his physical stature because I've refused him for the Lord does not see as man sees for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart and God had to correct Samuel from this very mistake that he was looking only at the outward appearance. And he says, look, that may be the way that you look at things, the way that people look at things. But God says, I I look straight beyond that. I'm looking at to the heart condition of a person. That's what mattered most. And thus, Jesse made all the sons pass before Samuel. And the Lord repeatedly kept saying, I haven't chosen this one. I haven't chosen this one. And ultimately got to the point where Samuel kind of was, do you have any other sons? I know it's one of your sons. And it's almost as if in that moment, Jesse kind of scratched his head and. Oh, Oh, there is one more. It's the youngest one. In fact, we just leave him out in the fields with the sheep because he's young and just he's you know kind of rough around the edges. And and and, and yeah, there is one more. And, and they bring in young David. And that's when the Lord says, that's him. That's him. Interesting. The one that everyone else overlooked, the one that nobody even considered was actually the one who God looked at as the next shepherd king of israel arise anoint him lord said that's the one why because god wasn't looking at all the other qualifications that the other group of brothers had with their experience or charisma or talent or whatever else they had god was simply looking at what was in the heart of david and the potential of what he could do because david had that right heart first samuel 17 king saul then turned right back around and made the same mistake with david when he was willing to slay goliath Nobody would go out and take on Goliath and David stepped forward and was willing to do it. And Saul rebukes David and says, you're not able to go against that Philistine. You're just a youth. What was Saul doing again by mere appearance? You're too young for that. You don't have enough experience. I mean, we have trained military soldiers. Truth of the matter was right. And they were all shaking in their armor. And David had confidence in the Lord to say, I'll go out there and do it. And if nobody else is going to you know, represent God's honor, then I'll do the hard thing. And he was willing to step forward and do the hard thing and do the righteous thing. The rest of them, they were sitting back. Oh, it's too hard. It's too hard. David said, I don't care if it's hard. If it's the right thing, I'm going to do it. It honors God. 
And this, this, this tendency can happen again and again. It was even the very reason, if we think about it, why Jesus wasn't recognized when he came, right? Wasn't that the, really the crux of the matter in some ways that they looked upon Jesus by outward appearance? Mark 6 tells us that when Jesus was in his own country, people couldn't accept the reality that actually he was the Messiah or the son of God because he was known as, I mean, that's the carpenter's son. And don't we know his brothers and his sisters? And, and the idea was, I mean, he's just such a common guy. I mean, shouldn't the Messiah be like glowing or a little bit more special in the way that he appears or speaks or presents himself? And, and they basically were overlooking Jesus and their minds were stumbled because he was just such a common individual in the way that he represented and, and manifested himself as he was living among the family. And I'll tell you, this is a really good question here in verse seven to ask ourselves repeatedly and in all of our situations from time to time to, to assess and to ask ourselves, are you just looking at things according to the outward appearance? I think it's just a good soul searching question that God asks us from time to time, whether it's assessing a situation, God says, are you only looking at it from what you can see with your eyes? Or are you willing to look a little bit deeper and trust me to look deeper? And when we're interacting with a person, are we only assessing or relating to a person according to their outward appearance? You know, we've all heard the old adage, right? Don't judge a book by its what? By its cover. The idea is take the time, open it up, go through the pages, look a little bit further, take a little bit more time first to read some of the story before you make a judgment on the matter. Read through it a little bit, and God says that's actually the thing that begins to help us make right judgments and evaluations. Jesus said in John 7, don't judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. That always reminds me that when we want to judge by God's viewpoint, we have to make judgments that are deeper than just what we can see with our eyes. We have to make judgments in faith and spiritual discernment and take the time in love to, to give God an opportunity to let us understand something or understand a person a little bit more deeply than just what we see with the eyes so that we make a good and a righteous judgment in a situation. Paul goes on to say in relation to this verse 7, if anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, and this is kind of the boast of these superior spiritual people among them, then Paul says, let him consider also this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. So Paul's kind of addressing those who felt that they were sort of a, a spiritually elite among the church at Corinth there. And this is what these false apostles and some of these deceitful workers were doing, kind of presenting this image that they were a spiritually elite group. And this is the idea that Paul references in verse 7 here, that they were claiming, well, well we are Christ's. We belong to Christ. Uh, and Christ has selected us. And it was kind of this, this arrogant type representation, claiming some special relationship with the Lord, that they possess some spiritual knowledge or some spiritual ability, perhaps, that put them above others in some way that made them a superior class and others inferior. And they kind of acted and represented as if they were superior in these spiritual matters. And Paul, you can tell, was not the slightest bit impressed or intimidated by kind of just this spiritual arrogancy. Paul saw this as nothing more than just an air of pride. And he says, these individuals, they just have a self-inflated view of themselves wrongly in their assessment 
And Paul says they should realize they think they are Christ. He says we're Christ just as much as they belong to Christ. And Paul here is just beginning to address this reality of having connection to Jesus as well and refuting this idea of special favor that any person can have with God over another person. And Paul understood this was complete wrong thinking. He says, look, they belong to Christ. We belong to Christ just as much as they do. God doesn't have favorites, Paul's indicating. There's nothing superior about them as Christians or or workers in ministry. And I want to say, look, be careful at any time you find yourself or you get the vibe from another person that somehow there is a spiritually elite among the church or among God's family in any way. Look, God is a perfect parent and good parents don't play favorites, right? And God's a perfect parent. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 2, verse 11, there is no partiality with God. Galatians 2, verse 6 says, God shows personal favoritism to no man. And just as each person is equally sinful and utterly unworthy before God in their self, so also each person is equally given opportunity by faith and through grace to receive all of God's blessings, all of God's promises, to receive relationship and intimacy with Jesus Christ. Revelation 22 says, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Jesus himself says in John 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That sounds pretty open to everyone, to anyone. Doesn't matter who we are, where we're at, where we've been, the Lord freely lets anyone come and he is willing to offer freely his son, Jesus Christ, relationship with Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins, the things of the power of his Holy Spirit, the promises of God. There is no such thing as special access. When Jesus tore the veil, he made access available to all of us freely and equally. And we never want to let our mind go into this perception that, oh, well, they're like the A apostles and we're kind of like the B apostles because they just seem so spiritual. And I feel so unspiritual. Paul says that, that is that's complete wrong evaluation. That's looking from an outward appearance that is just incorrect. It doesn't line up with biblical consistency. Don't let yourself ever be misled by the wrong perception that somehow one person can be more superior and another inferior in spiritual things. You have just as much claim and right by faith and through grace to the Lord Jesus Christ, to belonging to him, to experiencing relationship with him, to the things of the Holy Spirit, to being used by God in power, to being someone who can experience his promises. They're all for you. God wants it to belong to you. He wants every one of his children to be able to experience the same. Note where Paul then mentions verse 8, his spiritual authority that he understood came from properly. He said, verse 8, for even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us, notice for edification means to build up and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed. So note again where the authority 
in Paul's life spiritually came from. It wasn't something Paul acquired because he was such a gifted, talented guy or he graduated from this institution or, or whatever else he may want. Paul says the authority that we have spiritually as leaders, as ministers and servants of the Lord, he says, verse eight, it's an authority what? Which the Lord gave to us. Paul understood clearly it was not some self-appointed authority he took to himself. It wasn't that he had spiritual authority bestowed upon him by some person or organization or even another ministry for that matter. Paul realized that an important ingredient to us being effective to serve the Lord, to provide leadership, is very simply that we receive an authorization from the Lord for those things. Paul says our authority, the idea is we have been authorized by the Lord, that the Lord gave us divine authorization to fulfill the role that he has called us to in the realm of leadership. So Paul realized I'm authorized not by my own authorization or anyone else's authorization. I am only authorized by King Jesus himself to provide guidance, to provide leadership, to do what is necessary to function and to help people. Spiritual authority, folks, is not earned. It's not achieved. You can get all the degrees you want and still not have the anointing of the Lord's Spirit upon your life. A person can have all the education that they want or they can go through all the right channels or just like in business, they can network and know all the right people or they could just even be born into the right family. You're my son here, you get this. Only from the Lord can true authorization come into any one of our lives to fulfill the callings and the purpose that the Lord wants to use us for. And that's healthy, proper authorization to function in the way God calls each and every one of us to. You know, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 5 regarding the priesthood and the call of God in the Old Testament, no man takes this honor to himself. He who is called by God just as Aaron was. When Jesus sent out the 12 disciples, it says he called them to himself, he gave them power and authority, and then he sent them out. And that's what we all want, whether we're serving in any capacity, as Paul did or any other way. And notice what the purpose of divine authorization or spiritual authority to some degree being given to us. What's the purpose of that? Paul says it's to be used for what, verse 8? Not for destruction, but for edification. It's to build up people's lives. It's to help people. And Paul is going to mention this concept. We're going to see a few different times in the remaining part of the book of 2 Corinthians, this idea that spiritual authority or divine authorization from the Holy Spirit, from King Jesus to be able to serve is never something we are to use to harm people, to control people, to dominate people, to tear people down. A leader is never authorized to domineer or to destroy, to do anything harmful. But he says any authority or leadership spiritually from the Lord should be something used to serve people, to build people up, to care for people, to cultivate people and do what we can to build up those who are broken by the power and the authority that the Lord gives to us to have the privilege to do that. Look, let me say by way of analogy It is much easier to destroy things than to build them. Is that not true in construction? I I am not very good with my hands in building and constructing things, but I could demolish something. If you give me a sledgehammer or I could do the demo, 
But to build something, it takes a lot more skill and patience and wisdom and careful attention to build something. Anybody can destroy something. Anybody can tear things down. It takes a lot more skill to build things, right? The same is true with lives. Anybody can tear people down. Anybody can destroy people. Anybody can harm and ruin and do things to, to, to tear people down with their words or the way they treat people. But it takes a whole lot of skill and patience and love and careful attentiveness to build up broken people, to build back what's broken, to, to restore what's been destroyed by a hurricane or a tornado that sweeps through people's lives. And this is what Paul's saying. Our authority from the Lord is not to be big shots. Oh, we're big shots. We're leaders. Paul says, no, the Lord's given us authority so that we have spiritual strength to rebuild people to build broken lives, to help build people up spiritually. In fact, you can see what Paul says in verse 9, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. He said, I, I don't, I'm not trying to be the guy who writes these strong letters as if somehow I want to you know, put my foot down with strong correction. But Paul says, verse 10, for his letters, they say, now he indicates what was going on. They're saying about Paul, about his letters. They say his letters are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak. And his speech is contemptible. Now, don't say amen. But they were accusing Paul of that. And Paul here just flat out identifies what they were saying. He references specifically what his detractors were saying about him, how they were specifically criticizing him. Paul mentions in verse uh, 10 there for us this reality that they were saying, you know, this guy, Paul, I mean, his letters, when he sends letters, I mean, he really sounds like somebody who's got authorization he sounds like somebody who's an official leader in the church. But, you know, when the guy showed up here in Corinth, wasn't too impressive. I mean, the way that he looked and the way that he carried himself, he had a much better radio and letter voice. <laughs> but when we saw the guy, are you kidding me? Is that really? And, and, and you can imagine, I picture Paul, he's kind of worshiping together with the congregation and they heard that Paul the Apostle is there to guest speak that morning and maybe they're like us, they're, they're scanning the room because they're waiting to see what the, what the actual Paul looks like from his radio voice and wonder which one he is, wonder which one he is. And then all of a sudden, that's him as he walks to the podium and then he starts speaking and they listen to the way that he's speaking and communicating and they're going, this can't be Paul the Apostle. There's no way. And here Paul is just indicating this reality because this was a real challenge. And I'll tell you one reason it was a real challenge for the church at Corinth because they were tremendously engrossed in the Greek culture. And if you know anything about the Greek culture, the Greek culture was all about body image. You go over there even today, it's hard not to find a statue. And on top of that, an inappropriate statue everywhere you go among Greek culture. Haven't been there, but I know brothers and friends of mine in ministry who've been there on trips and they say, you don't know how many times you go to start teaching a Bible study on a tour and you go, mm, not with that statue here. And they walk some, oh, there's, all right, everybody just close your eyes and I'm gonna try and teach you a Bible study because they are incredibly enamored with bodily presence. And the ancient Greek culture was much like that. They were about image. They were about representation and flair. And more than that, they were also greatly impressed 
with those who were golden-tongued orators who could captivate a crowd when they spoke. You have to understand, in that day and age, they did not have Netflix for entertainment and cable TV. And Entertainment was somebody who, in an auditorium, could get up as a poet or a philosopher, and they could captivate a crowd with their presentation. And they could, with charisma and pizzazz, walk back and forth across the stage and enunciate certain things and and get a rhythm to their cadence and the way that they spoke and have perfectly outlined presentations with the five Ds of of deliverance. And, and, And they just, people who could captivate an audience who were charismatic in their image and their presentation, these were those that impressed the Greeks. And so for them... It was a very challenging thing to see Paul the Apostle's appearance and his presentation and even his communication because apparently that didn't exist very much in Paul. And Paul is acknowledging that very reality. They were mocking him saying, this guy's bodily presence is pretty weak and his presentation isn't any more impressive. We know from some ancient historical accounts that Paul is described, and we can't be certain, but ancient historical accounts say that Paul was a short man with a bald head, a hooked nose, a unibrow, touching in the middle, you know. They say that he had bowed knees when he walked. His bodily appearance was completely unoppressive, and he was known not to be very charismatic. And this is who Paul was. He comes in. So the idea here is, in our way of relating, Paul was not exactly the Don Juan or the Tom Cruise of his generation. That's not who Paul was. He was very simplistic. He carried and conducted himself in a very common way, and people were struggling. This guy's not very charismatic. He's honestly not that impressive. I mean, in fact, if he's supposed to be an apostle, shouldn't he just look a little more important? Shouldn't he seem a little bit more like he's someone that's impressive? He just seems so common. And they said, and his speech, verse... Then he says, and his speech, it's contemptible. That is his speaking ability. The Greek there literally refers to a speaking ability that accomplishes very little because it lacks entertaining value. That's the idea. This guy thinks he's a speaker in the Greek culture. (laughs) Doesn't he know the culture we live in? His speech is, is totally unentertaining. It's just contemptible. And their complaint was that Paul's speaking ability lacked that eloquence, that refined oratory skill. In fact, Paul's going to admit himself over in chapter 11, verse 6. He says there, I am untrained in speech. He says it himself. The idea is many people were very well trained in speech. Paul says, I'm untrained in speech, but I'm not untrained in knowledge. And Paul says, my my, my presentation may not be always polished. It may not be the best use of grammar. It may not be the most impressive display of how something's communicated. But Paul says, what I do trust and rest on is this, is I'm trying to impart truth. And I'm trying to impart knowledge to people, to empower people, to help people have the truth, to to sort out error. You know, it was said of D.L. Moody, many know him, a great evangelist and pastor, Historically, it was said of D.L. Moody that he had little formal education. His speech abounded in grammatical errors. Thank you, Jesus. Tommy says he has his own dictionary of words that I say that aren't even real English words. And we've known each other for 
two decades, so I can't imagine how big that is by now. <laughs> a reporter once asked a reporter once asked to cover Moody's ministry was trying to discover the secret of Mr. Moody's power. And he observed, listen to this, I can see nothing whatsoever in Moody to account for his marvelous work. When Moody heard this, he laughed and said, of course, the work is not mine. It's God's. What a wonderful thing to recognize how usable any of our lives can be. Because see, Paul's critics were stumbled by his presentation. They were bothered by his lack of impressiveness in communication. However, what Paul did have was the anointing of the Spirit of God upon his life. And it was that supernatural dynamic of the anointing of the Spirit of God upon his life and his ministry that caused Paul, therefore, to be effective for the Lord, to be someone who could accomplish things in the realm of the Spirit. Look, folks, when it comes to spiritual life and us serving the Lord and all the ways that he gives us to, can I encourage you, be way less concerned about spiritual appearance and presentation and be way more concerned about sincerity and the Spirit's anointing being upon what you are doing. Oh, I can't pray out loud. If you only knew how I sound. Why do you care how you sound? We don't care how you sound. Aren't you talking to God? Why do we even say that as Christians? I'm afraid to pray out loud. I sound so weird. Maybe that's a wrong evaluation. Maybe you should ask genuinely, are you just sincerely talking to God? And is the Holy Spirit leading your prayer? That's all that matters, right? Oh, I couldn't speak for the Lord. I can't speak. Who can? <laughs> We don't want to hear you speak anyway. We're hoping God speaks, right? <laughs> That's what I look at. Oh, I can't speak. Good. <laughs> if we hear you, that's not going to help us. But if somehow the Spirit of God says something through a donkey, we can take what God says. That might help us. And so we always want to remember, make right evaluations. It's the Spirit of the Lord. That's the thing that is essential. Paul says, verse 11, let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by our letters, when we're absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. So Paul says, listen, I don't want to, but I'm warning if it's necessary in the same way I'm strong and bold and stern in these letters I write to you. He says, if I need to, because of disobedience and rebellion, like a father, he says, I'm, I will bring correction in person if that's what's necessary when I arrive. Now, what to me in verse 11, Paul says there also becomes an amazing statement of Paul's integrity and consistency, because you can tell what Paul's alluding to what we are when we are absent. We will also be when we're present. What we are in word will also be in deed. What Paul's alluding to there is whether he's absent or present, whether he's speaking or behaving, it was consistent. Paul was a man of integrity. He was a man of consistency. He didn't show partiality to any group or to any person. He treated every person the exact same way. He wasn't impressed by people in the same way that God wasn't. And he was someone who I believe to some degree was so usable because he simply had integrity. He was the same human being everywhere with everyone. And that's exactly what we should want to be. That we're not chameleon Christians. We change our color according to the situation. We are who we are 
whether we're with a hundred people or one person, whether we're with this group or that group, whether we're distant or whether we're present, whatever, that we are who we are with consistency. And that's something that matters to God and can make us very usable for God by just being someone of consistency in who we are all the time. Paul says, verse 12, for we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. This gets wordy. But they are measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves. And Paul says, let's be honest, that's just not wise. (laughs) So Paul here alludes to this struggle that was going on where this group that was a bunch of troublemakers in the church. Paul says, boy, they just have their own mutual admiration society. They just kind of get together among themselves and they classify and compare themselves off of one another and and, and they're using their own standards. And notice the Bible says here to us very clearly in verse 12 that whenever we compare ourselves among ourselves or in comparison to other people, God just simply says by his spirit in verse 12 there, that's just not wise. It's not a wise evaluation. It's not a wise assessment because the danger is too easy for us to either overestimate, and that's wrong, or to underestimate. And both of those land us in the wrong place. We make wrong evaluations about ourselves. We make wrong evaluations about others. You know, we see that displayed in Revelation 2 and 3 in the church of Smyrna. It says as they were going through hardship and pain and poverty, it says they thought they were poor. And Jesus said, you are rich. See, because on the circumstantial level, it looked like they had nothing, like they had lost everything. And from the divine perspective, God says, yes, you've lost some things, monetary things, tangible things, physical things, but your life is being enriched on a deeper level underneath the surface. And they saw themselves wrong. By the same token, in Revelation 3, the church in Laodicea, that self-sufficient, successful powerhouse church, Jesus said to them, you say, I am rich. I've become wealthy. I have need of nothing. And Jesus said to that church and to those Christians, you don't realize you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. They had an over-evaluation of themselves. And Jesus corrected that very thing. See, the only credible standard is not to measure ourselves off of another Christian for spirituality or to compare ourselves to anyone else but to measure our life off of Jesus Christ. That's the only right standard. And that's what God's bringing us towards, to become more Christ-like. And this is why this is so important. And I'll tell you something, ladies and gentlemen, we live in a day today when this is just becoming more and more complicated for one very simple reason. And I just said this Friday night, I I spoke at our youth group Friday night uh, to fill in to teach for them. One big, big problem, social media. Because social media is giving everybody the opportunity to do what? Compare themselves among themselves and draw their standards and make their assessments and their evaluations off of, well, I mean, well, look, where, look what they're doing. Our life's horrible. They're at Disneyland again. You need to get a second job and take us to Disneyland. They're at Disneyland again. And see, whether it's that or peer pressure, or teenagers and young people feeling their lives are miserable and worthless and and drawing all these wrong perceptions because we're all comparing ourselves. I'm not on social media, but I feel bad for all those who are comparing themselves. 
and we're doing a huge, I'll tell you, a huge disservice, particularly to our younger generation. And I fear what it's going to look like when it catches up as the cumulative effect of that starts to happen. And here the Bible says it is not wise when we're overly comparing ourselves with everyone else to make our judgments. It really can be detrimental. Paul says, verse 13, we, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed to us, a sphere which especially includes you, the church at Corinth, for we're not overextending ourselves as though our authority had not extended to you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. So notice Paul knew that part of his sphere of responsibility in the Lord and to minister and to serve included his ministry to the church at Corinth because Paul and his team had come there and planted the church at Corinth. They had shepherded them for 18 months, teaching the word of God, getting them grounded. And Paul knew that ministering to that group of people was within the boundaries that God had assigned him and his ministry team to to care for. And I think it's a good reminder for all of us that we as well, like Paul, would be aware of the sphere of influence that God's assigned to us because he has assigned a sphere of influence to each and every one of us to know what people that includes that we're supposed to serve, that we're supposed to give our foremost attention to, to care for. God is appointed, even as he has to Paul here, a sphere of responsibility and influence to every one of us. And it's within those limits that there are certain people within that boundary that God's given to you that we're supposed to minister to, that we're supposed to give our attention to and to care for and, and, and to pour ourselves into. And we should know what that sphere of our influence is so that we can be really diligent and focused and faithful, giving ourselves there fully. Again, if, if you're a parent, it's not obvious. God's given you a sphere of influence over your children and your family. That's huge. That's huge. Paul tells Timothy when he writes criteria for ministry, he says, if somebody can't properly lead and direct and care for their own household, please don't let them take care of the family of God. Because that's a sphere of influence that is huge and obvious. And he says, look, that, that's an important area. That God assigns, God gives opportunity to minister to our wives, to minister to our children. Again, God gives us different opportunities. And too often we can tend to go beyond what the Lord primarily calls us to. And sometimes we're over here. Interesting, Paul says, verse 14, we're not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not include you. In other words, Paul's saying, we're not overextending ourselves. We know that you are a part of a sphere of influence that we're supposed to minister to. And we don't want to overextend ourselves we have enough just to minister to you, Paul's saying. And see, so we want to give our full attention there. You know, Paul tells, uh, in writing to the Colossian church, a man named Archippus, he says to Archippus in Colossians 4, take heed to the ministry which you've received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. The ministry that you've received in the Lord. God's given each one of us a ministry, opportunities, and we want to give our full attention to that sphere of influence. Peter, writing in 1 Peter 5, says, Shepherd the flock of God. Listen, that's among you. Who is among you? Just look right in front of you. Who is among you? Minister to those people. Shepherd those people. Give your full attention in serving those people for the Lord. Paul goes on, verse 15, to say, We're not boasting of things beyond measure. That is, other men's labors, 
but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by your sphere. He says, to preach the gospel then in regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. So Paul alludes kind of a little bit there to what the problem starters who were coming in among the church in Corinth were doing. After Paul and his team planted the church, laid the foundation, built the work, they were now kind of coming in on a secondary level and were trying to basically steal away for themselves what had already been established. So Paul establishes the work. He does the blood, the sweat, the tears. He gets things moving forward and caring for the flock. And then like spiritual parasites, those who are opportunists tend to kind of start coming in and boasting and claiming in some ways, look, I mean, you, I mean, you can't trust what Paul's doing. I mean, he's doing this all wrong. And they basically all of a sudden come in and begin to kind of try and build off of what Paul had done there in a very unhealthy and self-promoting way. And Paul says, unlike them, he says, we came in and did the blood, sweat, and tears there. We planted and established that. Paul says there in verse 15, he said, we're not boasting of things beyond measure. That is another man's labors. That's what they're doing. But he says, it's not what we're doing. This is our labors here, Paul says. You're the fruit of our labors, what we've done and contributed. And you notice that Paul's heart was to prioritize ministering where he was and where God already gave him opportunity and then pioneering new works where work of God had never been done before. And Paul alludes to that there in verse 16. He says, to preach the gospel in regions beyond you, not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. Well, you can tell Paul's heart is totally pure just by the way he refers to those things. That Paul's heart was simply to help people and to honor the Lord. Paul says, look, we didn't come in and capitalize on what somebody else was already doing there in Corinth. We came in because there was a need there and we gave ourselves fully to it. That's what these spiritual parasites here are trying to do. They're trying to come in and capitalize on our labors and to somehow usurp what's happening for their own benefit and value to draw away people after themselves. Hey, let's take a little bit of Paul's labor and bring it over here. And Paul says, that's not a healthy heart. And what Paul's alluding to here is this importance of understanding our own sphere of ministry, not looking to take credit for what others have done or detract from what another has done, but to look for avenues how to stay in our lane and to minister and to do the things that we know God has called us to do and to give ourselves fully unto that. And I'll tell you, by way of application for all of us here this morning, from my observation, there is plenty of work and ministry to do everywhere. Everywhere. From your household to your neighborhood to your job to your schools to communities. Jesus said the fields are white unto harvest. There is plenty of opportunity to do ministry everywhere. And I would say stay focused, ladies and gentlemen, on your sphere of influence, which may not be the same as my sphere of influence or someone else's sphere of influence, but ask God to clearly make it evident to you your sphere of influence and focus your attention there and faithfully, diligently give your full attention. Don't overly focus to try and do what others are doing or, 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 or build off of what someone else is doing. Instead, just, Lord, what's my sphere of influence? You've given me one. And just pour your heart into that and let God work in wonderful ways through the relationships and the connections he's given you to. And I'll tell you, that is more than enough to keep us all busy. We had a family of five. I was tired after that. 
You want me to do something else, God? I have a wife and three daughters. This is huge, Lord. This is huge. Don't undersell the value of ministering among your family, of being a solid Christian husband and a fantastic godly father to lead your home or or a godly mother to raise your kids in the ways of the Lord. That's huge. The sphere of influence to do something like that effectively doesn't make you any less in value. In some ways, in my estimation, which may be close to God's, I don't know. But in my estimation, you give me a godly mom, you give me a godly dad, that's way more power and influence than a lot of other bozos who think they're influencers out there. Those are the people who should have all the likes and the followers and whatever else you have on social media. Super mom, super dad, Christian parent, good husband, good wife. That's the real deal stuff. That's the kingdom stuff that matters. Paul says, as he concludes here, but he who glories, don't glory in what others, he says, glory in the Lord. He quotes from Jeremiah 9 there, which speaks about not boasting in our own wisdom and all these other things, but just, if anything, to boast about, just boast about how good the Lord is and what he's done. Paul says, verse 18, for we don't commend, he who commends himself is not approved, but whom the Lord commends. In other words, it doesn't matter what we say about ourselves negatively or positively. It doesn't matter what we say about ourselves, and it doesn't matter what others say about us or don't say about you. What matters is one simple thing. What's God say? Does God approve? That should be our primary goal. To just have the approval of the Lord. What does God think? Don't measure your life by the number of likes you get by human beings. Measure your life by things like, God, do you like what I'm doing right now? Lord, in this hour of my time right now, do you like what I'm doing? Lord, would you like it if I go do this thing? Nobody else will see it, Lord. But if it's what matters most to you, Lord, I'll do that. That's the way you measure because the goal at the end of the day is just to finish well and simply to hear one thing. Well done, what thou good and faithful servant. That's success from God's perspective. Let's stand together.